You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 519, a Beatles special. A quick fire fab four quiz, McCartney 321 and All Things Must Pass reviewed, and Julia visits Abbey Road Studios. That's all coming up after the Beatles and eight days a week. sounds so fresh and exciting 56 years on uh not released as a single over here but number one on billboard from the album beatles for sale the beatles in eight days a week it's always a pleasure to hear that isn't it there's something so uplifting about it i think it's wonderful and that they're not enough to show up show i care that I vocal know. line the, the way the melody I kind know. of climbs up in into the stratosphere is lovely i think yeah it's it's genius level stuff absolutely um, Welcome to Parish Council episode 519, a Beatles special. Yeah. Um, and on a Beatles special edition, here's the Fab One. It's Juliet <laughs> Harris. I consider myself to be the George Martin of this podcast. Yes. It, it, you know, it, it, it would happen without me, but I bring a little bit of magic to it that perhaps might not be there if I wasn't. So uh, a, a real uh, I'm nuance. not going to. It's absolutely yes. I'm known for my nuanced views, yes. aren't I? As I rant about men every single week. Anyway, hi everyone. <laughs> 
Um, now, Jules, a Beatles special, so a mm. quick fire Beatles oh, quiz. Oh, no, I'm gripping the desk again. Oh, oh man. Oh, no. Five questions to test mm. you and the listeners' knowledge okay. of the Beatles <laughs> in relation to the UK album chart, oh, the official man. chart right. used by the BBC. Okay. Um, easy one to start with. All right. In the UK albums chart, very easy one to start with. Not including compilations, just standard Beatles albums. Which Beatles album has the shortest title? Quick fire, quick fire. Help. Four letters, correct. Longest title. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Correct, 30 letters. Easy one to start with. Number two. Including mm. all compilations this time, literally every Beatles album ever released in the UK. Which Beatles album, Juliet, Lucy, Harris, which Beatles album has spent the most number of weeks on the UK chart? Is it one? Oh, that is superb. That's superb because I I would not have got that. I would have said the one that's at number two, which would have been the obvious I remember thinking it was the the alternative. um, It was their Abba Gold, wasn't it, essentially, in terms of the hits compilation that just sells and sells and sells. 326 weeks in the UK album charts for one. And what was my guess that would have been, what was the obvious guess that was actually at Um, number two? uh, Sergeant Pepper. Is 275 weeks, correct. Well, you're doing superbly. I mean, it can only go wrong from here. Well, indeed, (laughs) indeed. So other than collections or compilations, not including them, which was the first normal Beatles album not to reach number one in the UK? Oh, okay. Tricky, um, tricky. Mm, Work your way just, through them. I'm working my way through them. Um, I'm thinking. So not including comp. I'm just no thinking what counts as a just compilation. The ones, you know. Um, um, what magical Beatles, mystery Beatles. tour does that count? It was the magical mystery oh, tour. Oh gosh. Okay. I didn't know that was a compilation or a soundtrack. No, no, anyway, that, was, magical yeah, mystery tour. that was a standard Beatles album in that sense. Number thirty-one was the it was all it mm. reached. Which um, is amazing when you think it was either either side of it was Sergeant Pepper one side and the yes. White Album the other side. Absolutely. It really does show. And they did the TV thing as well, and didn't they? And the TV they? thing on yeah. Boxing Day. Um, it just shows that it didn't it didn't go down well no, at the time. Work. I remember. No. It was like, oh no no no. What only one other Beatles standard album, not a collection or a compilation. Only one other Beatles album didn't make number one in the UK other than Magical Mystery Tour. This is just a bonus. Which Yellow one? Submarine? Which one? Yes. Oh, Juliet. <laughs> this is mad, isn't it? Ooh. Who knew? I mean, I, I, anyway, this last one's going to be a stinker, I can tell. No, no, we've got two, two more left. That was question oh, right. three. Well, they'll both be stinkers then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, question four. And actually, I would never, ever have got this one. So okay. um, yeah, if you get this, well, then really, I will Expert fall on the floor. Which Beatles album spent the most number of weeks at number one in the UK album chart? Um, you, I, I, mean, I can't even think there's will be a list. I'm not sure Mark Lewison would get this. I'm going to guess. Let it be. Please, please me. Oh, I I thought it would be now. I I now my thinking was it will either be the first or the last. So ah, I went for the first. last, and of course the first is the is the one. Thirty not, weeks at number one. Wow. To please please me. I'm not so that surprised though because it was such yeah. a new thing, wasn't it? I suppose so, but I'm I'm still surprised mm. that it beat Sergeant Pepper at twenty eight mm. with the Beatles twenty one and a hard day's night at twenty one mm. weeks at number one. Final question. Mm. 
Uh, Juliet Harris, mm. the Beatles hold the record for the most number one albums in UK chart history. But how many different Beatles albums, all compilations now, everything. Oh, wow. Okay. How many different Beatles albums reached number one in the UK? And I'll give it to you if you get a few either side of the number. Okay, so then. So how many different I'm, Beatles albums reached number compilations, one? I'm counting compilations. So... Mm, Okay, so so I'll do it. I'll do my working out on air because that probably makes uh, yeah, that'd be easy. Otherwise, it's going to yeah. be very quiet. Otherwise, it's going to be yeah. I'll have to okay. sing eight days a week to everybody. I was going to say some people would welcome a period of silence from me. I suspect, but anyway, so I think that the one compilation got to number one. We know this earlier on. I think the green and not the green, the red and the blue probably both got to number one. That's three. I reckon that the love album probably got to number one. The Cirque du Soleil thing. Um, so that's four. I think that so then we know that please please me is five um with the Beatles is six um hard days night seven um with the Be- um Beatles for sale is eight help is nine uh, rubber soul is 10 revolver is 11 sergeant pepper is 12 um white album is 13 let it be 14 abbey robe 15 let's say 15 I'm going to give it to you at 17. That was oh wow! Which, your working out was splendid there. Which two have I missed? Oh, Presumably I've missed. Who knows? Who knows? But anyway, yes. Well, that's I, I'm I'm reasonably pleased with that as a result. Mm. I think that's all right, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Rick Rubin is an extraordinary man uh yes. the, the son of a shoe wholesaler he he founded Def Jam Records when he was still at school mm. and then went on to produce so many artists it's impossible to list them all they, they range from Adele through Ed Sheeran Johnny Cash Public yes. Enemy quite a range currently he's hosting McCartney 321 it's mm. a six-part TV series in tandem with Paul McCartney reviewing Paul's career from uh, the Beatles through to his solo work. And this week we watched episode one. These things bring us together. The story. These things bring you together. Mm. Um, what did you make of McCartney 321, Jules? I very much enjoyed it, actually. My my expectation levels were probably set at medium because in a, in a way that they, they are for all things that, and I think we talked about this before on the podcast and review music, films and biographies, anything that has the official endorsement of the artist is always, yes, in my yes, view, yes, going yes. to be a slightly yes. sanitised version. So I wasn't expecting any big revelations. I wasn't expecting sort of anything deeply serious. I saw that the episodes were half an hour each. So I thought, well, you know, that doesn't allow time for loads of analysis it's likely to be a bit not exactly clippy but a sort of mm. a you know a kind of a, a light thing and it when that's very much what it was like I thought the Rick Rubin got the tone very much right for me yes. in terms of giving McCartney space to sort of muse and reminisce but at the same time <clears throat> excuse me keeping the direction you know keeping things flowing adding his own expertise without being irritating I thought he was a very good guide for us through the through a sort of a knowledgeable guide but without being irritating it certainly beat Idris Elba's interview of Paul McCartney a few months ago which is one of the most execrable things I've ever watched so so that in that sense I thought it was very good the only slight gripe I had mm. Why did they let Paul McCartney chew during it? I oh, found it really irritating. It. Oh. I hate it when people eat on the phone. I hate it when people chew when they're talking to you. So I found that deeply irritating. Very so it took me a little while to get through that. He wasn't chewing in every bit because they moved. He was sort of talking in different things. I thought that McCartney came across well. I thought that he, Rick Rubin had obviously put him at ease. 
it was nice to see them listening to things together i enjoyed his little stories that he told i mean it might well be that more seasoned beatles watchers had heard those all before i hadn't really heard the the michelle story very much i no, thought me he, too. Was, he no, was I, very, they were new to he me he was these. very dryly entertaining when he um was talking about how someone's wife who was a french teacher was uh, was was a, sort of t- ivan's wife i think was a, was a french teacher and he she he, he she came up with the rhyme for michelle and uh, and the fact that he said what are these the words that go together well in French and when she told him he said mm, you better write that down I thought it was very I thought it was I thought he was very self-deprecating I thought his his fondness for John Lennon from the early days came across really well without being too sentimental and schmaltzy I thought this was a delight I very much enjoyed it I sensed that other people might want things that are a bit deeper you know it's it, and it's not to be fair it's not setting out its stall as a you know a sort of a a four-hour revelatory sort of new look at the Beatles it is what it is it's a it's a it's a gentle shuffle down memory lane with Paul McCartney and I I enjoyed it I I was I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the series it was it worked very well for me yes I'm going to binge watch the rest of them I've still only watched the first one but I I adored every minute of this half hour with Paul I mean um yes from him explaining John's rhythm guitar part on All My Mm. Loving to analyzing uh his bass runs on While My Guitar Gently Wins I think Paul is at his most relaxed when he has control, and you mentioned that. Yes. And then that you know this was co-produced by MPL Communications, and Paul and Rick Rubin are named as co-producers. And by the way, our old friend Mark Lewison is thanked in the credits. So yes. uh, you know that's got gives it credibility. Yeah. Now I, we, we say Paul was relaxed, but that's all relative because, as you mentioned, he was chewing gum ferociously, oh, irritating, and yeah. it was incredibly off-putting. And his body language was defensive, but it often is um his his arms were firmly crossed at times but Paul Paul is always rather guarded he rarely gives much away emotionally and when I was watching him in this it just I just felt I loved it and it's great and there's much to be taken from it but he I always feel with Paul McCartney whenever he's interviewed he's not quite in the room Mm, he's almost performing Paul McCartney. Yeah, exactly. There's something that's held back. Having it was like, but it was a bit like someone telling you stories at a party. So you yes. go to a party and there's someone that's a bit more that's seen as a bit more snazzy than everyone else and they're kind of holding court in the corner or in my local pub there are local singers that do this a bit and and it was a little bit like having said that I can you know the level of scrutiny that Paul McCartney has been subject to Mm. for the last 50 years must be well it's off the uh, for the time it was off the scale and it's still it's still like that now I think to a certain degree so I can understand why when you've been in the public long life for that long you would you might be a little bit reticent particularly given you know some of the the portrayals of his personal life in the last 20 or 30 years I can see why you might want to hold back like that I yes I, I agree with you that there's always something a little bit cagey but having said that I really enjoyed the stories he told. I mm. thought I thought he was he was in it in quite in quite good humour. Um, he was at his most relaxed when he had a guitar, yes. which I thought was quite telling. Yes, so when he had indeed. something to fiddle with, he was he was a bit more in it, if you see what I mean. But no, I I I don't have an issue with that. I do understand. I'm I'm Church of Paul anyway when it comes oh, to be the worshippers. So so you know yeah. I, he could do what he likes. Is my is my ultimate. Yeah. Belief. yeah. It was it was interesting to hear him explain it, how when um, they were it was writing songs with um, John Lennon, um, 
how they had to be memorable because back in the mm. late 50s there was no way of recording them so they had no. to be easy to remember and i thought that was really interesting to think it's about a good that point yeah absolutely. yeah that you had to remember it the next day what you were doing the day before i enjoyed the moment this was this was very paul i thought he leans over rick rubin and shoves the bass part up when they're playing <laughs> back michelle i thought that's just so poor but it's always good to, to see and hear paul even even with by the way again very husky voice i do yes. worry about his voice um yes. talking and giving new insights and he um I, again it's very interesting he echoed that line that ringo gave to an interviewer back in i think 1963 when he was asked what his ambition with the beatles was and ringo said it was to earn enough to open a couple of hairdressing salons with mooring mm. and paul sort of echoed that saying that they all expected to be back working in a factory within a couple yes. of years. And it, it was, was not. It was go. not. It was. It was yeah. seen as a short-lived yeah. thing, wasn't it? Really, mm. it wasn't seen as as, as something that would stick. I also thought it was very interesting, given that, and and it's never it's never clear whether it's always rumored that John Lennon's famous nine about Ringo not even mm. being the best drummer in the Beatles was in fact confected yes, um, years later so, and was yeah. never actually true. But then, having said that, because of Lennon's sharpness, there is something that's always been a bit believed about it i really liked the fact that for all that ringo is often derided and taken for granted there was the the scene where he walked out during the recording of i can't remember if it was a white album or abbey road he sort of walked because he was just sick of it all mm. and when he came back his drum kit was festooned with flowers because they'd all kind oh. of had a, bit of a shock and realized yeah. sort of how much they would miss him he um mccartney says uh, you know we always had to have they were talking about with a little help from my friends and he said oh, we always had to have a ringo song on every album mm. because you you know he had millions of fans and i loved the idea that, that ringo was was recognized as a star in his own right within the beatles even though he's always been seen as the drummer and a slight sort of comedy figure i loved the fact that they re he put mccartney recognized the importance of ringo mm. as a as a thing i thought that was really nice absolutely mccartney 321 it was released on hulu on Hulu. July the 16th Hulu mm. and um, it premieres on Disney Plus in the UK on August 25th I very much recommend it it's if you if you I mean obviously this always comes with the caveat if you like the Beatles Absolutely. and are interested in the Beatles and McCartney but yeah it's a very easy watch coming next the 50th anniversary remixes of All Things Must mm. Pass that's right after Paul McCartney and Wings someone knocking at the door somebody ringing the bell Someone's knocking at the door Somebody's ringing the bell Do me a favor Open the door And let him in Ooh, yeah Someone's knocking at the door Somebody's ringing the bell Someone's knocking at the door Somebody's ringing the bell Do me a favor Open the door, I let him in, yeah, I let him in.
knocking at the door. Somebody ringing the bell. Do me a favor, open the door and let 'em in. Ooh yeah yeah, let 'em in now. I love that. It was introduced to me. I wasn't really very familiar with with I obviously I knew Wings and Paul McCartney, but I wasn't very mm. familiar with that until um, some people asked for it on my Smooth Sailing show last year, and I found it such a comforting song to listen to during lockdown. And I think this is this really does show McCartney's sort of sweet spot of being sentimental without being too cloying. I think it doesn't always achieve that balance, but I just think this is so lovely and also very timely. I think at the moment with things that are, that are going on in the world and people being displaced it's just got such a lovely message it's obviously about you know sort of people your family turning up to uh, visit you but there's a warmth about it that I think is just so lovely so that's Lenamin. I just read this morning that Lenamin was released in France and I didn't know this only as a 12 inch special disco mix and now I ache to hear that Mm, it's, it's lovely, isn't it? I would, I, but yes, I would like to hear the disco mix, although it does frighten me a bit, the concept of yes, that being disco. I've really got to listen to that later on today, um, if I can find it. Bobby Whitlock was 22 years old when he was asked to play keyboards on George Harrison's 1970 triple album, All Things Must Pass. Mm. And the album has been reissued with an assortment of demos, alternative takes and mixes, many of which are brand new to fans as you know, they've not appeared mm. on the massive number of All Things Must Pass bootlegs mm. over the years. But in something of a twist, Bobby Whitlock um, played on the album, as I say, but mm. he's been extraordinary criti- extraordinarily critical mm. this week of the new version, saying he's mortified um that's the worst sounding blank i have heard mm. in my life it sounds like it was done by a couple of high school people it's all muddy bass and muddy drums i can hardly believe it it is blank awful 
On the other hand, Variety magazine and its reviewer, uh, Jem Aswad, says this edition proves it's the best solo Beatles LP. He goes on to say this gorgeous cacophony sounds more amazing than ever than uh, in this revamped Sonic edition. Well, you've been listening to these new mixes this week, Jules. What's the story with All Things Must Pass? I think they're lovely. I think the mixes are really, really good. I think they've given it. A, I mean, it's so easy to think, you know, when when things are constantly, you know, reflogged. When the dead horses flogged one once and once more, you know, you think, is this going to bring anything new to these things, or or is this just, you know, as uh, David Quantic put it once brilliantly when they did all remastered the Beatles album in about 2009, 2010, that set. Well, I don't know what we think, but so far I've paid 14 pounds to hear slightly louder bongos um it is very easy <laughs> to think that <laughs> i think that was about um one of the early ones yeah. I, you, it is easy to think you know how much of a difference is this really making but actually i think that this this remixing is inspired i think that that it brings fresh new life to these songs it, it made me listen to this album which i'd always slightly dismissed just for the, the the pure fact that it's too long yes um i'd always you know sort of slightly fold this away a little bit but actually listening to it again with these new mixes i think made it sound far more important than I thought it had. It's got had some very good reviews across the board, actually. Um, at the moment on, on Metacritic, it is scoring 91 off seven reviews. Um, the Telegraph gave it a, their equivalent of 100, saying there's a directness, freshness and intimacy these, to these performances that puts the late great Beatle George right in your ear, untarnished by, by time. And they've done that amazing thing of making using new technology to make something sound better than it did at the time and almost sort of fresher and newer than it did at the time. Hip Hop DX has given it 99 out of 10. Uh, Rolling Stone says the original All Things has aged brilliantly. The fresh remix doesn't hurt. Uh, the two CDs of early demos could easily stand on their own. Spare Camp Fireish takes on which uh, Spectre would soon have all of sound bricks. Um, and uh, Spin saying, as is often the case, we hear why certain iterations remained on the cutting room floor. There are certainly plenty of hidden gems in this vault clearing effort and I think I think that for un- unusually I did listen to some of the other discs as well as the original remastering mm. not very much but I sort of dipped in and out on a popular mm. internet listening service and it it, you know, I, I found things of interest. Usually, when you say, "Oh, you know, here's an here's a new four, five CD box set of something," you're mm. reaching diminishing returns by the time you've got onto CD three, if they're usually. But I found yeah. there were lots of interesting delights in this, and we, you know, we mocked and rightly so, I think, the other week the multi, the mega yeah. new edition involving, you know, garden gnome and part of the garden and goodness knows what else. <laughs> Having said that, the record itself, I think, is a really, really good take, a really good reissue. It's it's been done really well and it's made me like it more and it's not often that a remastered remixed version of an lp does that really no it's splendid i mean i genuinely genuinely hadn't played this album i have mm. to say in 50 years uh, but i've changed <laughs> my mind in a in a positive sense yes. in the in, intervening time when all things must pass was released george at, at least in public, was going through a bit of a grumpy phase. He, mm. he, he was unrecognisable from the schoolboyish, yes. uh, cheeky Liverpudlian from, um, I say, say, a hard day's night. His character characterisation of that. We're, long, we're only, long, yeah. long hair, beard, big hat. You Absolutely. know, it yes. six years on, he seemed to carry uh, the weight of the world on his mm. shoulder and. I remember at the time of its release, many people found All Things Must Pass somewhat depressing. And there was disappointment Mm. at the third disc, which nobody played much of the time. And like you, I dipped in and some of those tracks 
do still sound like a pub band kind of mucking about at rehearsals in a village hall. But uh, the beauty of listening to the new versions on Spotify is that you don't feel ripped off by the disturbed <laughs> disc. True, you true. just play the songs you like and um, yes. miss out or quickly move on over any filler. Now, I really like these remixes by Donny Harrison and Paul Hicks. Mm, I lovely. totally disagree with Bobby Whitlock. Yes, I hear same. no muddiness, only uh, clarity as... Um, George's vocals, I think, in particular, have been brought forward in the mix. And that also helps him bring a bit more sort of zest and uh, vim to the tracks. Mm. Um, I counted 31 musicians listed on the credits. Wow. And George, I think wow. George was very generous in giving them key roles in yes. the songs, in the, you know, in, in the playing. And they range from um, the chaps from Badfinger to Peter Frampton, mm. Dave Mason and, of course, Eric Clapton. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed it very much. And I think it's uh, well, I think because I think there are several different packages available from standard vinyl or CD. But as you mentioned, for that absurd uh, Uber deluxe box set for nearly a thousand dollars or 850 quid. The thing is, if you're going to sort of buy, I think or wondering, you could maybe should simply listen on streaming services and then you can sort of make up your your own mind as to whether you actually want to purchase the physical product. Yeah. All, all Things Must Pass, the 50th anniversary, released on the 6th of August 2021. Coming right up, Inside Abbey Road, including Studio 2 and more with Juliet. That's next after this new remix from George Harrison.
Yes, I don't want to overdo the flattery of Darnie Harrison and Paul Hicks, but I think they've done a brilliant job Yeah, they there. have. They breathing, really, really have. Yeah, they've breathed new life into, uh, well, this from January 1971, number one in the UK, number one on Billboard in the US, George Harrison, and it's a 2020 mix of My Sweet Lord. It's a song which I think we've, we've talked about it previously on the podcast. I've just grown to love, particularly over the last couple of years. I find it so moving and so wise. And and I think to, to hear it, I thought that song was wonderful anyway. And I didn't know what you could do to improve it. But no, the fact that they've found, I don't know what it is they found, but they found something. They found something that, that's true genius, isn't it? To find something that we didn't even know was missing, I think is brilliant. Absolutely. And a very, I think probably a very difficult track to uh, remix because it's got, got it's got six people playing acoustic guitar on it, three, <laughs> three on keyboards and two drummers. So to get clarity out of that mm. uh, fifty years on is is quite an achievement, I think. And they've it's done brilliant. it. Now ask people what is what is the most famous street in London? Some might say <laughs> Downing Street, Piccadilly, yeah. maybe Oxford Street, Baker Street. Anyone with half an interest in music though will almost immediately answer. Abbey Road, um, a reasonably anonymous B Road around the corner from Regent's mm. Park and Lord's Cricket Ground. But since the 1960s, number three Abbey Road has been revered by Beatles people as the, the home of the recording studios because it was here that the Beatles recorded nearly all of their studio output. Studio two at Abbey Road has become a sort of legendary shrine as we can only imagine how it must feel to be there. Abbey Road Studios, generally not available to be checked out by the public, but our Juliet this week has been right round the whole place. And if you can, Jules, try and give us a flavour of the emotions <laughs> running through you in standing in the studios in Abbey Road. Well, so these tours were organised. It was called Abbey Road Open House. They were organised by Abbey Road to celebrate 90 years of Abbey Road being opened. It opened in 1931 and uh, in April. So this is how long and how overexcited I've been about this. I booked our tickets, myself and my friend Dave. I booked tickets for us both at the end of April. Oh, wow. And so so we've had four months of anticipation and all of a sudden it's here like these things are. Uh, they cost £100 each. Um, I would pay double that to go really? in Happy yeah. Road. So I'd, and also, as a, a person of our, our, our friendly acquaintance put it on Twitter, keeps the riffraff out. And I have to say, whilst <laughs> I hate, I hate to vote, don't send your class war letter bombs to me. I, I, I have to say, I think it did. Because mm. so we, so we got there. There was there were time slots. We were all queuing outside, and of course, once you you, you get off the, the the St John's Wood tube and you walk a, a short walk to it, mm. and you see the wall outside which they let people write on and then they repaint every couple of months that was made up there was a display to celebrate all things must pass so there was the huge writing of that there were large sort of paste ups of George so we had our picture taken we did a selfie with a paste up mm. of rather gloomy looking George in, a, in, in his hat and long hair and he, he was a glum figure in those he days was. It's, re it's really strange isn't it he was always quite wry wasn't he and quite mm. quiet but yes that, that evolved but anyway we had a picture with Cheery George um, outside. Uh, we were queuing up. The whole thing couldn't have been slicker in terms of its operation. Oh, it was brilliant. There was a very tall, quite stern, but not unpleasant woman doing security outside. She, oh, I don't know how tall she was, about six foot five, I think. She was, I would not have argued with her. Anyway, we, 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 it, was, it was well organised. Everyone 
everyone that we that we the sort of the hosts that the tour guides mostly younger people but a bit of a mix um they were either people that worked there or there was a very nice young japanese chap whose name i didn't catch sadly who was very friendly towards us as we went round who had done an engineering placement there he told me so and mm-hmm. everyone that spoke to us was friendly welcoming cheerful the amount of times people said to us thank you for coming to which you feel like saying well well, no thank you for letting me Mm. in um you we were told that photography was not allowed now there's been a bit of a hoo-ha about this people going oh i've paid 100 pounds i can't take pictures i can't describe how wonderful the atmosphere was without constant rows of trying Mm. to push people out the way and having pictures Mm. taken and all that kind of stuff we had our photographs taken on the steps by a member of staff who said oh well if you give me your phone i'll take photos of you we weren't rushed we had three taken of me three taken of dave by ourselves and then three of us together they did them from different angles they were brilliant we had a a lovely introductory talk from a woman who said how excited she was to have us there and i genuinely felt she was as well everyone just seemed to seem like a really big day it'd been going on for a week so we went in we were taken and sat in the control room of Studio 3. So we sat behind this mixing desk looking into Studio 3 that has a full band set up in it. And we were a a nice engineer lady called Marta, I think that was her name, and a chap called Freddie sort of welcomed us and explained that the studio was operational. And we were shown a film that had highlights of people at Abbey Road that was played on the control room speakers. So it already sounded like the greatest music you've ever heard because it was in Abbey Road speakers and something. And of course it was hugely emotional being in that room and we're sort of watching all these things. I'm getting tearful listening to you I mean, I don't know how I held it together. And they said, oh, so we're going to play a little highlights here and then we're going to play you a a stereo surround mix in 5-1. And I can't remember who did it now. It was Paul someone. I can't remember now. I'm sorry. It wasn't Paul McCartney. Someone else. But they said this this person did this mix and it was recorded partly here in Abbey Road Studios and partly at the artist's home. And he was asked to do this remix in 1999. And so they they trailed it and they didn't tell you what it was. And of course it was Imagine. And they showed you the video of John and Yoko and, and, I, you know, as, as advertised on this podcast, I hate Imagine. I think yes, it's really right. And it was so emotional hearing it on those big speakers and seeing John and Yoko and the bit at the end where he pulls a face at her and then they kiss. I really felt they loved each other, you know, and it was it was lovely. We then were taken into Studio 3, which we'd seen through the glass. They had a 60s mic set up, which you could speak into and hear yourself speak in Abbey Road. So we did that, which was really spooky. And so we're, we're and, and all of the instruments in this room are open so you can press them so i i pressed the notes on the piano that they used on yellow submarine um which was super super strange and then another big emotional moment for me so it was it was very well done in that they were playing through the speakers songs that have been recorded in that room so you were hearing these songs so they played tomorrow never knows and i'm stood next to the organ that was used to play it and you know various things are sort of labeled the guitars in there all sorts of things and then reading the sort of, there were large placards telling you a little bit about songs that you were hearing that, that, that have been recorded there. And I realised looking at this car, this thing, that Amy Winehouse's last recording session was in Studio mm-hmm. 3 of Abbey Road just before she died. She and Tony Bennett, her hero, did Body yeah. and Soul as a duet. Oh and so I'm stood looking at a gatefold vinyl version of that duet album by Tony Bennett, reading about him and Amy, stood where, you know, where they were stood in that room and then it played. oh oh my god I don't know how I kept it together it was just an incredible moment and then we were 
I never felt rushed at any point. We were told we had an hour and a half roughly to do the tour. We weren't particularly guided. We were just, when we felt that we needed to move on, we ought to move on. And I did say to Dave, you know, we've been here for ages. We're going to run out of time. We need to look at everything. It's so, because yeah. you just want to look and touch at absolutely everything. We then were taken along the corridor, brilliantly well organized, cheery security people, corridor lined with photos of recording sessions of people there, you know, huge photographs of all sorts of people. Uh, we got into the control room studio too, at which point, you look down into studio oh, no. so the control is upstairs oh, my God. so so we were looking down and sort of stood by the mixing desk and you know reading things about george martin and his start on you know sort of comedy records and stuff and hearing you know the hollies through the through the speakers and so we walked down these steps and everything that had ever been used was there so all of, and most of that was behind ropes but the organs that were used on dark side of the moon you know ev- everything had just been set up and you were just walking past these bits of history and you know the celeste that was used on lucy in the sky with diamonds you know everything was there and um, they were playing and you just heard music constantly so you were playing ella fitzgerald doing can't buy me love and 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 at which point this cheery japanese chap who was just wonderful was telling us a bit about the sort of the things we were looking at so there were certain recording consoles that um had been uh taken with, with uh radar equipment that was first used in nazi germany that of course once you know once we, we went over there we found these things and we started using using them um we saw the understairs cupboard where they kept all the uh, the comedy instruments that were used on and and that that told us that george formby recorded where i'm cleaning windows in studio <laughs> two at abbey road so learning all these things um we saw the mic that was used and not used on year blues so you know the last verse of year blues mm. is lennon shouting into a dead mic so they said uh, oh this was used on year blues yeah but it also wasn't used on year blues, yeah, was it but um so we were sort of looking around there thinking you know it, it, it couldn't get in it we went in the echo chamber that was also used as a um as a air raid shelter and i mean i'm not being funny it completely stunk but it was amazing to be in there <laughs> listening to bus stop by the hollies and so so i was already quite overloaded by this point as you can imagine no, it, and then yeah. we went into studio one right. where there was a full orchestral setup with no one there, but they'd set it up as if mm. the orchestra were going to play. Um, and they had quite a lot of stations with things you could watch and listen to through headphones. And we watched Edward Elgar, as in that Edward Elgar, mm. conducting the uh, the orchestra doing Pomp and Circumstance at the opening ceremony of Abbey Road in 1931. Wow. So we stood and watched that footage, which was just, I mean, you just, and then of course we went to the next video station, which was a full start to finish footage video of Scylla doing um, Alfie oh, with yes. Bacharach with, conducting. With Bacharach, yeah. Yes. Oh my and, God. Uh, so we watched that. It, and to be watching these, you can probably watch them on YouTube, but to be watching mm, it in the in room is room. really special. And of course there was a lot given over in this room to um, to film soundtracks. So they had all these posters up and, and basically any film that's got a big orchestra on it, the soundtrack's probably been done in Abbey Road. So we heard the original Star Wars theme, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, and particularly movingly for me because it is, so, I mean, I, my first piece that I wrote for the Rocking Vicar website back in the day, they played past the soundtrack to The Snowman and that was the point at which I, I nearly lost it, I must admit. And and we were sort of looking around and just reading all this and just taking it in. I mean, it's abs- you know, I, I cannot explain how near it was to a religious experience if you like that sort of thing, to just be in that place and not to have to shove people out of the way of taking photos and just to be soaking it up. And then they said, all right, there's one more thing left to do. And then we went into the control room of Studio One 
and sat in the Studio One control room again behind this desk. And they, again, lovely engineers in there that were saying, oh, and so so we're going to play something now. And the thing about hearing music through studio speakers like Abbey Road is you just hear it in a totally different way. And also everything sounds impressive. And so they played a snippet of the soundtrack from Star Wars Episode One that was released in 1990 with a huge choir on it. I think it was the London Philharmonic Choir and the orchestra. I think it was conducted by John Williams. And they just played this overwhelmingly busy and loud record on as we looked out across, and as we were hearing it, you could see where the orchestra would be sat and where they mm. would be playing. And then we went outside. I spent a stupid amount of money in the gift shop, and uh, and that and we went round Abbey. We were in Abbey Road, and as I got a text message at one o'clock the next day from my friend Dave saying, "Gear, guess what? This time yesterday we were in Abbey Road," mm. and I I I just I mean the idea that they let people do that. It was done in such a measured way. It was it was I felt truly welcome. I genuinely did, and I think it just goes to show the the kind of the, the way in which it was so thoughtful. I think, and they put so much thought into what a big deal this is for some people in order to get in they gave you a lanyard with a vip pass on it that mm. said vip abbey road studios and the date and when we hand, went to hand them back they went oh no you keep those oh so, lovely. so i've got my vip pass that i went to abbey road and i've got my photo of me on the steps of abbey road and it was just the most wonderful thing and i get that it was expensive but i think it was probably expensive for a reason because if you are standing next to the piano that they used on half a revolver i just feel it probably should be you know i think it's history that needs to be looked after and and it was just i'd have paid so much more to have experienced those things to be in those rooms to be listening to those things is just such a such a big thing and it very easily could have been underwhelming and and i'll still be remembering things in a year's time that i that i haven't thought about to tell you today it was just Oh God, I loved it. <laughs> it was just the most amazing thing. You, you've told that story so beautifully that I've, I just feel so emotional just listening to you it was, talking uh, I'm about it. I'm surprised that I didn't cry my eyes out on the day. There were moments, the Amy Winehouse moment. I mean, I just, it was, it was just, what do you even say? You know, what, what do you, how, what do you say to be sat in those rooms and know that people weren't sat there, and and the fact that there was no oh you shouldn't touch this or or you know or, or, or can you not stand here it was just everyone was just so pleased that we were there I think and yeah. I got the impression as well having spoken to the Japanese chap I asked him if the studio was open what happened during lockdown and he said well we were shut completely for uh, three months and then all of a sudden it opened again and it was like I think with lots of things in lockdown the world stopped didn't it for about three mm. months and then all of a sudden tv and sort of everything thought well we've got to find a way of, of getting on and i think that's what that's what abbey road did but yeah booked every day for the next six months so if you would like to record at abbey road it's not impossible <laughs> might take you a little while though and you might need quite yeah. a lot of money as well i sense rather like i almost i almost wish i'll never meet paul mccartney because i would mm. just become a foolish yeah. tearful same, wreck. same. <laughs> i almost also hesitate about ever going into um, inside Abbey Road Studios myself as I'm not sure honestly I'm not sure I could cope with the emotion if I stood in that room and looked up those stairs and thought of mm. George Martin advising John George Paul Ringo about the sound on Penny Lane I, I think I fear I would I might collapse even even walking past outside gives me the heebie-jeebies um, yeah just one just one I mean such a just being and a real I think not taking photos is a real lesson that I think mm. we should all take from lockdown, which was to be in the moment. 
Yeah, and I absolutely right. felt when I was in that room, I was in the moment. Again, the, the people telling us that um, that they had all the, the padding hanging off the walls and they said that they'd had to replace the padding in the 80s because it used to have dried seaweed in it and apparently it completely <laughs> stank. And uh, the, the being in there for sort of days on end was quite difficult, I think, at times because it just really smelled. So, so, the, so just again, that little fact, the idea that when the Beatles were sort of recording parts of Revolver and, and you know, and, and, and One World, that oh, our world they had a thing about you know all you need is love our world it was recorded there mm. and you just think it just it's just anything that was ever any good seemed to be recorded there and and, and you know the idea that there's a Kate Bush connection as well and we'd completely forgotten about that it was it was mm. it was you know it was just everything really just everything that's ever happened seemed to have musically that was ever any good there seemed to be a link thank goodness both the Abbey Road Studios and the pedestrian crossing um, have been given grade two listing yes. because on the national heritage list because uh, uh, to prevent any jiggery pokery because it yes. was only after that only happened after EMI wanted to sell out to property developers mm. as recently as 2010. And they wanted that the, to... Wasn't that the terra firma thing, the, the hedge fund thing that happened? It was around that time, I think. It was going to develop, redevelop the studios into, into luxury flats, which would have been <sighs> The greatest sin in British architectural history. Absolutely. Big shout out to Margaret Hodge, who was the minister who led on that grade two listing in 2010. Mm, absolutely and well, the funny was thing was it was it was adapted from a house in the first place and that mm. was that was the whole point they picked it because it was a residential area and it was it was like to be crying oh and we did cross the road and have our photos of taken course, across the, the road and uh, there were a couple of van drivers who clearly weren't stopping for anyone but apart from that everything was quite quite good natured and it was just a happy day you know it was just it, everyone was happy and overwhelmed to be there the staff couldn't have been more welcoming and kind and thoughtful and it was it was great it was it was really great well done to everyone everyone at Abbey Road for realising what a special day it was and also it seemed they just seemed proud to show off where they worked what what a great what a great place to be well I mean thanks for your amazing description and um, also thanks very much to everyone for listening to yes, our as always. Thank you. Thank you for letting us prattle on about the Beatles. I mean, yeah. let's say it's been so different to any other podcast, hasn't it? We never talk about the Beatles on this podcast. And if you would like to listen further to Juliet, and who wouldn't, there is a way <laughs> to do so, Jules. Yeah, that's too kind. Thank you. You're always too generous. But anyway, uh, yeah, I do a little show on Sunday evenings on my Mixer channel, mixlr.com forward slash Juliet hyphen Harris. We'll just go on to Mixer and search for my name. Um, and that is smooth sailing. So it's a uh, yacht rock, easy listening. Stuff that I think is good, but equally not overly challenging. Just sort of uplifting, relaxing tunes for the weird times we still find ourselves in. And there's a show reel button on my Mixer page. You can catch up with previous shows if you would like to do that. You know, to, to look back and understand the incredible, um, well, the acceleration of mm. um, artistry and the effect of psychedelic drugs, um, we, <laughs> we, we simply, you know, you simply have to recall, and I checked this out just before we started today, that there's only two years and nine months between the recording dates of She Loves You mm. and our closing track, Jules. I mean, that's when you put it like that, it's just something else, isn't it, really? And so so I, I think I've chosen this track before for the for the show here. But having heard this in Studio 3 of Abbey Road next to the piano, which it was most likely recorded from, 
I, 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 I love this Beatles song anyway, just because I think it is, like you say, so head, head-turningly innovative. And the fact that it still sounds forward-thinking now, this tune. I mean, and you wouldn't have my beloved Chemical Brothers without this track, I don't think. And yet when they, it sounds like them producing stuff now, and they don't sound, I think, particularly old-fashioned. It's, it's just so, it sounds like nothing else that had come before it. And a lot of things since have sounded like it. But it it just in in people go on about helter skelter inventing heavy heavy metal music yes fine it probably did but this i think it just opened the door and, and the idea of you know relax rewind unwind um, and you know the idea of sort of uh, dropping out and just letting your mind flow downstream with with this completely frenetic music as well i think is it just invented a whole new way of making music perhaps a whole new way of thinking as well i don't know we've 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 argued a bit in the past about whether or not a record or a song can truly change your life but this i think changed music in a in a a way that's never been properly credited i don't think and to, to hear it in the place it was made the fact that they came up with this in that little and the studio theory is not large it's quite a small room and yeah it's yeah you know to hear it on those speakers in there and to think that someone someone came up with this someone invented that and it was the Beatles is is was just literally mind-blowing this is tomorrow never knows
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs> <laughs>